smartcast.com This is the morning brief from the Economic Times produced in collaboration with avas.com I have to say my opening lines are not original I just had to borrow them from one of ET's favorite columnists who says SPACs are like the much sought after VIP darshan or break darshan at a temple a side door entry into public markets without the scrutiny of going public and with greater flexibility but seriously spac what on earth is this acronym and why are they so popular well we have the best experts to decode on this special episode joining us from gurgaon suman sena founder chairman and managing director of renew power he's a man of the moment renew is the first indian company that has a spac listing underway in nasdaq after it recently announced an 8 billion dollar merger with rmg acquisition corp 2 a blank check company we also have girish vanvari founder transaction square one of the best tax brains in this country especially when it comes to cross border taxation issues It's Friday, March 5th from the Economic Times. I'm Arijit Barman and you're listening to the Morning Brief. To start with, I will try to simplify in my own words as much as possible what SPACs are and then we can get the experts to deep dive. So a SPAC is a shell or a blank check company, all legal in case you are already spooked which raises capital in an ipo to acquire unspecified businesses or assets through a merger after a target is identified and the acquisition agreement signed the proposed acquisition needs okay from the spac investors investors who do not approve are given the option to redeem their spac shares step 3 upon completion of the acquisition or the merger which is called despac in jargon speak a private business is taken public step 4 the spac typically raises additional funds through what is called the pipe route private investment in public equity yet another jargon in advance of an acquisition to address the risk of reduction in available funds in case investors choose to exit or redeem their spac shares finally if an acquisition or a merger cannot be completed within a specified timeline following the ipo typically within 18 to 24 months the spac is required to liquidate and return money to the investors sumant so, i hope i have passed the test yaljit i think you've explained it very well great now let me come to you first There's a lot of excitement renew the first indian company to actually explore this route you've made the big announcement but what made you choose a spac instead of say a traditional listing maybe in india us or anywhere in the world for that matter yeah thank you arjit thank you very much for having me on this uh, show um so you know for us it was actually fairly straightforward Uh, as a company we had been thinking about getting a listing or about getting listed uh in a market of course of our choice 
And that market really was, uh, in our view, uh, a market outside India because of the phenomenon of ESG investing, which, as you know, has become quite uh, big now. Uh, and secondly, because of fairly deep and liquid pools of capital available in some of the overseas uh, exchanges. And so we were looking at an overseas listing. Uh, the choice, of course, before us was to go go ahead and do a straight, uh, straightforward IPO, which in the normal course is what we would have done. But as we looked at the market, we also saw that uh, the whole phenomenon of SPAC uh, listings had also become very common. Uh, and so therefore, as we examined it, it seemed to be offering us a fairly viable path forward towards getting a listing done as well. And so we said, uh, you know, why not go down that path? Uh, it seemed uh, as credible uh, and as uh, straightforward as a direct listing would have been as well. And so that's why we chose to go down this path. And you also could have, you know, tapped more private equity. There were reports of, you know, strategic interest, yet you chose this route. Is it because of the boom in the SPAC market? I wouldn't say so. You know, it was, uh, I, I think the time was appropriate for us to uh, to get listed. And of course, as a company, we tend to explore all, you know, options of raising uh, funds. Uh, ours is a capital, in, uh, you know, intensive business. And so therefore, in conversations with various different um, uh, instruments and possibilities to raise capital at any given point in time. Uh, and so that's what we were doing. Uh, so I think the listing was, in our view, a more logical thing for us to do, uh, in a way also thereby to give exit to some of our shareholders who'd been invested in our company for a long period of time. Uh, and so that's why the listing was the more logical thing for us to pursue right now. Sumant, so, I get the rationale behind going for a U.S. listing, but at the end of the day, Renew relies on India. You're an Indian growth story. So won't homegrown retail investors ever get a chance to buy into your company? Won't you ever look at a India listing as well? Uh, Ajit, it's hard to answer that question, actually. Of course, as you know, Indians are allowed through the LRS route to buy stocks overseas as well. Correct. So that is always a possibility uh, for Indian, uh, at least Indian individual investors to um, to get exposure overseas. There's a cap. That's why I'm asking. I understand. But I also know that there are, of course, a number of funds that are now aggregating uh, demand from Indian residents to acquire overseas assets, uh, overseas uh, stocks. And so I guess that's uh, that's. But again, there is an LRS cap on that as well. Um, you know, whether there is any way for us to give exposure or, or to um, allow Indian investors to list uh, in the future into or, or invest in our stocks, it's hard for me to say at this point in time. It's, a, you know, we just want to get the current uh, transaction finished and then we'll think about the future. Okay. So never say never. Absolutely. So Girish, if I uh, may come to you, SPACs are not really new. I mean, we had blind pools in the 80s. Even SPACs have been around. It's not like some 2019, 2020 phenomena. But why is the frenzy now? The frenzy now is, you know, to do a SPAC of an Indian company, there are a lot of tax and regulatory issues. When the Atma Nirbhar package was announced, it was an intent that Indian companies will be allowed to list overseas. So typically the way the laws are today, if you want to list overseas, first you have to list in India. So your price has to be discovered in India. And then you can do ADR, GDRs. So Indian companies are listed overseas through ADR, GDR mechanisms. 
There are a couple of companies which got listed in the old regime like VDF and CFI, which didn't have to go down this path. But the government mentioned in the Atmanirbhar package, which came in April, that they intend to let Indian companies directly list overseas. Guidelines have not come through. So people waited and waited. They were hoping that the guidelines would come through. That would automatically address, you know, your issue of Indians also being had an opportunity to invest in, say, for example, renew power. But those guidelines were weighted. But now globally, SPACs have started doing well because there's a lot of liquidity in the market and people are raising money overseas, lock, stock and barrel in big manner. And to take that opportunity, whilst the wait has been very prolonged for these guidelines to change, people are now looking at, you know, SPACs very, very aggressively. We've also had, for example, if I'm not wrong, Videocon DTH did a SPAC some time back. Do you recall? That was four years back, yep. That probably was the first SPAC or it was some different format? It was uh, the first SPAC was in a similar format, but uh, that is something which did not take off. That is not a great example to follow. Uh, but now what we are looking at is there are big changes that happen from now till then. And the big change is that if you look at the Indian unicorns, now they are in a situation wherein majority in many of these companies are owned by global funds. So if you look at any unicorn, you would have 75 to 80% venture capital or foreign fundings. So to swap to a SPAC when you have so much foreign funding is very easy. So if you have an Indian company in which more than 51 was owned by Indians. Then you have round-tripping issues, you have execution issues. But if you have an Indian company where 80% is held by foreigners or foreign funds or VCs, then switching to swap becomes very, very easy. And what I see today, Indian unicorns have got significantly diluted and Indian promoters are in many cases 30% or below, which makes SPAC really, very, very attractive. So just to give our listeners some perspectives, in 2020 alone, over $80 billion were raised in the U.S. from more than 200 SPACs. That's a staggering number. With the number of SPAC IPOs in the U.S. in 2020 being five times of that in 2019 and seven and a half times the figure in 2017. Sumant, I mean, if I come to you, what were the benefits that you felt? Is it the speed to market? You know, no roadshows, the regulatory flexibility that people talk about in terms of no book building. If you could just elaborate and, and help us understand from your own experiences, what were the advantages? The fundamental difference between a SPAC and an IPO is the following. In a SPAC, you obviously uh, find a SPAC. That SPAC will already have some degree of money associated with it. And once they have done their diligence and they have agreed on a pricing with you, with the company, let's say, after that, uh, usually the amount of money that the SPAC has may not be sufficient for what the company requires. And so hence, therefore, there is this other process, which is called the pipe process. And then you jointly go along with the SPAC sponsors to these pipe investors and go through a regular roadshow process. It's, it's not that it's dissimilar to an IPO roadshow process. You go through the exact same kind of a roadshow process. The only difference here is twofold. Number one, that instead of going only as a company, you go along with the SPAC sponsor who sits there and says, look, I've also done diligence on this company. I agree with this valuation and here's why I support the company. Okay. So that's, 
That's one difference. And then based on the quality of the sponsor, you know, it'll have more value or less value. Okay. Uh, the second thing is that in a SPAC, because a SPAC pipe process is a private process, you essentially get your institutional shareholders over the wall to the private side. And that then allows you to share certain non-public information with them, most importantly of which is your future forecast of financial performance, which in a public process you're not able to share because in a public process you can also have uh, individual investors investing. And they may not be sophisticated enough to look at future forecasts and be able to study them and examine them and be, you know, opine on the veracity of them. And so because this is fundamentally therefore a private process, you are therefore able to share forecasts as well. And so at the end of that process, you then build the book between the SPAC and the pipe. And that then, you know, becomes your total corpus. And once all of that process is done, then you announce the transaction. And then you actually have to file with the ACC. And you have to go through the same registration process that you would have had to go through had you been filing for a regular way IPO. Okay, so the only difference is that you do the marketing ahead of the filing. In an IPO, you would do the filing and then the marketing. You know, in some ways, that's a difference. So when you talk about speed to market, really, that's the speed to market that you get because you can not circumvent the SEC process, but because the filing comes after the book building, you can do the book building first and then do the SEC process. That is really the fundamental difference. The pipe can be smaller than the SPAC. It can be much larger than the SPAC, right? It can be several times the size of the SPAC itself, number one. Number two, also keep in mind that the SPAC is constantly trading. And so therefore, the shareholders of the SPAC can actually undergo an entire change several times over between the time the deal is announced and the time that they have to vote on the closure of the transaction. So there is therefore a constant uh, change or churn in the SPAC shareholding as well over time. The pipe investors are similar to what you would have in a public market transaction. They are fundamentally uh, your usual institutional investors who would be investing in a public market transaction, right? They agree to cross the wall, which has to be approved by the respective compliance departments of these respective organizations. Once they do that, they are then uh, able to have conversations with you, basis which they may then take a decision to come in or not to come in based on their interest in the in the story and the valuation and so on. So it's very similar to that process. Got it. But Girish, a SPAC has no operating history. In a way, it is a shell company before a merger or acquisition. And its target industry sectors may or may not be disclosed. So therefore, the prospects are completely tied to the credibility of the sponsors. They hold the key, correct? Absolutely right. The 20% sponsors who are people of repute and credibility are the people the investors back. On day one, they have nothing till the acquisition is done. But then, you know, Suman talked about, uh, both of you actually talked about the pros and the current market realities. But if I'm not mistaken, only a few companies, thematically, if we see that from internet economy, new media, renewables or EVs, are spacking or spac ready. Now, why is that? What stops say, a traditional Indian manufacturing company from also trying to do the same? And is it only uh, meant for private companies? What if I'm a listed company in India and I also want to do a SPAC overseas? Does it work? To answer that question, 
I would, you know, look at two regulations. One is the Income Tax Act, and second is the RBI regulations. And these two are deterrents for all companies to be able to get into a SPAC structure. Let me give you an example. If you want to merge an Indian company into a SPAC, say you want to reverse merge, we've always heard about mergers in India, GSK merging into Unilever. Can Unilever merge into a SPAC overseas? Or can Unilever merge into Unilever PLC? Answer to that is RBI guidelines say you can merge, but at the same time, that merger is not tax exempt. It's not tax free. So for a company to merge into an overseas company, there are no tax holidays, there are no tax exemptions, and that makes it impossible for them to get around the tax regulations. Look at the second part, the RBI part of it. RBI has serious reservations with downtripping. So let's say if you have a company in which 80% are held by residents and you try to get an approval for a SPAC wherein they will swap their shares for shareholding in, in SPAC, First of all, the swapping is taxable. And second is, will RBI grant them an approval under round tripping? Will RBI permit it is a very big question. Sumant, you know, you talked about, you know, why you chose this route. So let me understand. So the money that, that you're going to raise will, of course, you know, some part of it is secondary. It will give some liquidity to the existing investors who are seeking partial exit. There will be some money of, uh, which will be used for debt reduction. What else will you use the proceeds for? As a company, we'll get about $700 million out of the $1.2 billion that we raised as part of this whole process. Of the $700 million, some part will go for obviously transaction expenses. Uh, a bulk of it will be used for uh, future growth. And um, some small amount will be used for debt reduction. Uh, but the bulk of it is going to go for uh, growth uh, opportunities. But Girish, my worry is somewhat different. The going's good for the moment. The party is rocking. But then you have companies like Fisca, Nicola going belly up or coming under scanner for questionable tech. Or they've simply just not delivered. Lucid, multi-billion dollar SPAC, but hasn't delivered on a single vehicle as yet. Now. We've also seen the alternative investment market or AIM boom in the past. It was a specialized unit of the London Stock Exchange that catered to small, more risky companies. Very soon, it became a liability. If you are an AIM-listed company, you are trading at a discount. How does one ensure that the SPAC boom also doesn't quickly become bust? Actually, uh, as Soman said, I wouldn't worry about markets. I would worry about the business model. So business model, which is good, whether it is SPAC, whether it's in India, like we know so many Indian unicorns who are Indian-based and still get premium valuations. We see a rush for investments in those unicorns. So really, uh, whether SPAC will fade away, will it become like a AIMS, if you have a good business, wherever you're listed, you'll get your valuation. Yes, you will get a better valuation overseas because of the way the perception of these unicorn is. But business comes foremost. If you don't have a good business model, you can ride the wave a little bit here and there. But in any diligence, in any detailed scrutiny, you'll never get the premium. So I wouldn't really say that AIMS will fade away, SPAC will fade away, bad business models will fade away. Okay. If you can, 
talk about you know the steps that you need from an indian company to getting merged into a uh, is what are the intermediate steps that one has to take actually it all starts with the industry you are and uh, the kind of cap table you have and the manner in which you can transition into spec that's how the structure comes up so for example if i had a uh, indian company which uh, which had 80% fund share holding 90% fund share holding then first i would do is how do i transition into spec do a analysis as to what are the tax issues what are the regulatory issues what are the lock in issues how will lenders react and uh, based on that uh, come up with a blueprint as to what is the cost and what is the opportunity i see many people not going to a second layer of discussion because the tax cost becomes very very prohibitive so if you didn't have a treaty holiday if you didn't have a treaty exemption and in many cases where the gains are significant the tax cost is a upfront tax cost uh, on the hope of a future listing and people find it prohibitive to move to the second level if you had a lot of indian investors then you would have down tripping issues will rbi permit it will rbi allow it whether how much time will the rbi approval take in many cases where 70 80% are held by foreign shareholders you first transition 70 80% into spec after you are convinced about the tax issue and then after that you have a choice of either transitioning the indian shareholder into spec or what you can do is do a put in call agreement with the indian shareholder that the spec vehicle will buy the indian shareholder at a particular determined price or a formula in the future so that the indian shareholder also has an exit route and doesn't suffer any round tripping issues at this point of time or tax issues at this point of time okay so girish let me understand this so if you are an indian incorporated entity okay and you for you want to before spac you you offshore your company that some people are going that route is there a tax implication from you know moving from india to offshore and if so what is the tax incentive there are two concepts of offshoring first is when shareholders are already offshore they are already offshore so you don't need to offshore anything you just have to accumulate their shareholding second option is that you try and transfer indian shareholding into an offshore structure those are all areas where rbi comes in tax comes in processes comes in valuation comes in and that becomes a little tricky so to say i have a 100% indian owned company owned by indian shareholders and offshore it and do a spec that will be really challenging no i'm talking about you have foreign shareholders in an indian company an indian company wants to you know do a spec listing so does the indian company first become an overseas entity and that overseas entity in turn merges into existing spec in your for example the indian company has to do nothing what would happen is you would consolidate all the shareholding which are which are held overseas in this indian entity into one spv and that spv merges into spac so india nothing changes india continues you just shift all the shareholding into a common vehicle or shift it in exchange for swap spac shares itself so it all happens overseas nothing changes in india understood but there is there a tax incidence here that depends upon when you've acquired the shares as i told you if you were owning shares from singapore or mauritius if they were acquired prior to march 31 2017 it's all tax free and after that it's all taxable so you have to really see the tax cost upfront versus the valuation upside and there are other smaller aspects also carry forward loss in the indian company what happens to it which you have to factor in and take a call 
So who pays capital gains and where? In the US, in India or both? Capital gains tax on the stage one of you swapping into SPAC is payable by the investor and the investor is normally based in Singapore, Mauritius, Cayman, depending upon where he is. So he pays capital gains tax in these countries where in many of these countries there is no capital gains tax. And since the sale of shares happens of an Indian company, you pay capital gains tax in India also, subject to treaty being available to you. Okay. Because the capital gains is on account of an asset which is or has been domiciled in India. So you also pay capital gains in India, correct? That is right. So if I'm an offshore entity, there are different slabs, right? For Indians, I think it is long, uh, long term is 22% and 10%. For foreigners? That's right. You put surcharge to it, it becomes 28% for Indians. So uh, non-resident swapping into SPAC has a lower tax rate and Indian swapping into tax has a higher tax rate. And Indian also has an RBI issue, which non-residents don't have. I see. Okay. Okay. So 28% and 10%, this yep. is long-term capital gains you're talking yep. about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And on what valuation? It's at the fair valuation. So whatever is the SPAC valuation which you negotiate, it is at that price you do your swapping and taxes are paid at that price. Okay. Sumant, most companies have ESOP pools. You know, the managements are, are typically Indian residents. What happens to their shares? They Can they also sell or they, as, as Girish was saying, you either have a you know put or call options or you do a swap kind of an arrangement? So it really depends and uh, you really have to get good legal tax and actually tax advice on this issue. But regardless of whether you uh, swap uh, into the overseas company or not, the reality is whenever you sell your shares, you have to pay as an Indian tax resident taxes in India. So to me, it actually doesn't even matter, you know, where your uh, options are eventually uh, uh, located, uh, because uh, you know ultimately you have to get the money back into India if for whatever reason it happens to be overseas, and you have to pay taxes in India as a normal tax resident. Correct. You, you're also a corporate finance whiz. So uh, uh, resident Indian shareholders, I guess, they can also be issued different class of shares in that offshore resulting entity, right? Which gives them rights and benefits that are uh, at the level uh, commensurate with their residual shareholding uh, at the Indian level, correct? That's right. I think you have some of that flexibility in overseas markets. Fundamentally, you're selling the India growth story, I guess, to global investors. Now, often, and, and, and you know, the, the, I, I've noticed that people also worry about the flux, you know, the regulatory landscape of what is happening in Andhra Pradesh, Gujarat, contracts getting cancelled, you know, this uncertainty. How sustainable is this India story? Don't global investors ask you these hard questions? So... Arijit, of course, people ask questions. Of course, investors are uh, understand the environment and uh, where you're operating and the and the, the business opportunity that it represents and the issues and problems that you deal with. Uh, you know, these investors are fairly sophisticated. So you have a robust conversation with them. And at the end of it, they make an assessment of the risk reward and whether it makes sense to invest or not. And, and that's a process that any investor would go through irrespective of how you approach them. That's true. Girish, the last question I wanted to ask you that ideally, shouldn't there be a lock-in for the sponsors? You talked about how important or critical it is 
you know, the, uh, the role of the sponsors. But, you know, we unlike a I- traditional IPO, they don't really have a lock-in period here. So they just can't, uh, they can't dump the shares after the IPO pops. So shouldn't there be a safety net, so to speak? Actually, uh, the, the way the process works is that they float, they raise money, it's a blank check company, then they negotiate with the Indian company, buy it out. When they are buying out the Indian company, the process is so robust, you require approval of the shareholders of SPAC. So that means everybody has been bought in into the new uh, acquisition. So let's say if an ex-company in India goes down the SPAC route and swaps into the SPAC, it happens with the consent of SPAC shareholders. And the public shareholders in SPAC are doing it with their eyes open because they've consented to this. So it's, it's, I think it's only fair that the sponsors exit out. Even though Girish is the expert, I would still reckon retail investors should be careful and aware of all facts before jumping in. For the sponsors, profit is assured, irrespective of the final outcome of the SPAC. Limited ownership disclosure requirements and the big pop in compensation being linked to an acquisition do call out for stringent regulation. But then again, it may kill the market altogether. Stanford law professors have shown that the average stock price falls by around 15% after the first three months and even further over a longer period, predominantly on account of dilution. So, pre-merger investors with minimal risk get exponential returns, while post-merger ones do sometimes suffer negative returns after assuming the risks. Then, as Silicon Valley's tech guru Vinod Khosla warns, technology risks, competition and projection risks associated with these very high-growth new tech poster boys are very real and highly variable. Sumant, Girish, thank you very much for taking time out for this primer. It was really eye-opening, but we have exceeded all time limits today, so I've got to end here. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this as much as we did. I'm Arjit Barman, and you've been listening to The Morning Brief. This episode was edited by Devina Sengupta, Shashwat Mohanty, and Nehal Chaliawala. Shashwat and Nehal were also the episode coordinators. We look forward to your feedback. Write to us at themorningbrief@timesgroup.com. And if you like the episode, please share on your social media handles. We would really appreciate it. The Morning Brief drops every Tuesday, Thursdays and Friday. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Goodbye and good luck. Avaaz.com